Good morning, FBC. This is Pastor Kyle. I am the youth pastor here, and I'm going to bring to you kind of the conclusion of Paul's instruction to Timothy. Um, the letter isn't over yet. We actually have a little bit of kind of an interpersonal dialogue between Paul and Timothy, but this is the last of his kind of uh, life of Paul instruction, his wisdom, his learning that he's taken from his journey with Jesus through whatever, how many years, around 30 plus years of serving him. So uh, if you would just please join me briefly in a, in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you so much that you are here with us this morning. We thank you that no matter where we are in the world or where we are in our little city or even in our own hearts, Lord, you are actively seeking us. You are, your word will actively um, rebuke and encourage and empower us to live more and more like Jesus because that's what you've said you are going to do in us. So please, Jesus, be present through your word, be present through your servant Paul and through me. Help me get out of the way and help your, your uh, rich uh, tapestry of scripture just in, inform and encourage us. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. All right, before we jump into the text, though, I want you to look around wherever you're at at home. So you might be in your living room, your kitchen, your bedroom. I want you to look around, and I want you to share in the chat a, a short description of a picture or an item that reminds you of somebody that you love. So it can be somebody that's died. It can be somebody that's alive. But just share something that you can see from where you are right now that reminds you of somebody that you love and care about. And if you're a sports fan, um, and, or maybe you're really sporty, uh, you could also share maybe like a, a hero that you have in the sports community uh, and, and something that you can see from them. So maybe it's a baseball hat or a baseball or a picture with, you know, your favorite boxer or something like that. It would be fun to just have a moment where we're sharing what we can see immediately around us that reminds us of the legacy of people that we either love or respect. So take a moment right now. Share in the chat. It's okay if it keeps going for a bit as I talk. I just want to get the pumps ready because we're going to be talking a lot about legacy today. And legacy is important to the human race. I mean, that's how we learn. That's how we, that's how we grow. So, all right. Hopefully there's some really cool things happening in chat. The only thing about legacy that um, we're going to have to deal with, though, that's hard today is that it's an ending, right? A lot of, a lot of people in our life that have influenced us um, either pass away or pass on out of our lives. And the endings can be sad and somber. And that's what we're going to see here today. Uh, following the, the passages preached by Pastor Lee um, these uh, three and, and two weeks ago, we're getting to a really kind of intense close to the letter from Paul. This is not a, a joy-filled ending. It's pretty somber. Yes, there's joy in the sorrow, but I have had a really hard time making sense of this passage in any other way than it's, it's kind of heavy. It's sober. It's sober-minded in a lot of ways. And it's difficult for me to do this because I'm usually the bubbly, happy guy up here. Yeah, I can get a little fiery. Yeah, I can get a little emotional. But the point is usually I can, I can make something enjoyable about this. But honestly, this is just a heavy, heavy, set, of, heavy set of verses. And I think that's okay. Without this sober-minded reflection on the past, almost a sad reflection on the past, um, we would never, as human beings, repent. We would never see the need for our Savior, for our, for our ability to say sorry. We would just keep on going forward. We would actually make terrible spouses and parents. 
we would make terrible friends. We would always just be moving outward, away from where we were just at, and maybe going in the wrong direction. And we would just continue in that direction no matter how far off course we would go. And we would never look back and go, man, I should really stop where I'm going and ask the people around me, am I, am I, am I doing the wrong thing here? All right, without reflection, without this constant idea that we are leaving a legacy behind us, we will be people that are prone to making mistakes. So even though it might be a little heavy what we're going to read today, I think it's important one, for our faith. I mean, how else are we going like, to depend on Jesus, right? <laughs> if, we, if we think we're just going ahead and we're doing great, we don't need Jesus. But also, we're going to really hurt the people around us. And so, um, yeah, Paul, in this, uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul is kind of laying out where he's at. He's, he's laying out the fact that he's about to die, and he's run a race, he's fought a fight, and he's going to meet his Lord and he cannot help but reflect on his whole life. I mean, this is a moment where you see in TV where the life of somebody flashes before their eyes. This is Paul, probably as he's writing these verses, his life is flashing before his eyes. And we've had snippets of his life given to you, this whole, this whole series on 2 Timothy, because Paul never lived an easy life after he, he became a follower of Jesus. His life was very difficult. And so I found a quote that kind of sums up the story of Paul. I love it, but it's a, it's a tough one. It's by Orson Scott Card. And the quote says, The opposite of a happy ending is not actually the sad ending. The sad ending is sometimes the happy ending. The opposite of a happy ending is actually the unsatisfying ending. Does that make sense? So it's not just about happy or sad. It's about, is it, does it mean anything? Is the ending meaningful? Does it actually reflect kind of the meat and potatoes of the story? Or is the person's end kind of this ignoble, forgetful, sad ending? I mean, if you've seen shows with bad endings, you know how disappointing an unsatisfying ending can be for a really great character. I chose this quote for Paul because him and all of those, he says in, in the end of verse 8, all of those who long for Christ appearing have a good ending. Right? Even if it's sad, it's a satisfying ending. And I want you just to think about the fact that how tragic and unsatisfying would, would life on earth be if everything that we suffered and strived for meant nothing at the end. And that's how most people live. What an unsatisfying ending. Sure, you may be happy in, in your life. You may die uh, healthy, wealthy, and blessed. But if, you, if that means nothing in the eternal realm and there is life after death, then oh man, that is an unsatisfying ending. So let's look at the text and see what's going on and and hopefully glean some really powerful truths from this kind of sober-minded reflection of the past. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through 8. It will be up on the screen if you'd rather read from the computer. I will be reading very quickly, and then we'll be covering verses 6, and then verses 7 and 8. So, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 through 8 says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge. He will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So we see Paul is, is, is clearly thinking about the end here, the end game. And in verse 6, he says some weird things. What is going on here, a drink offering? Like, what is that? Right? In 2020, what does a drink offering mean? Well, is it like the wine you buy 
for somebody when they invite you over for a, a, a fancy dinner party, like, hey, I found this Australian wine for 20 bucks. Here's your drink offering for inviting me. Is that what it means? <laughs> is, it, is it like what you do when you're at the game and someone's like, hey, I want a beer, and you're like, oh, no, I got it, bro. I'll buy the beer for you. I, I don't, it's, it's a confusing phrase that has gone out of favor in our world today. And so there's actually a lot of them. Um, of confusion around what Paul was trying to say with this, because there's a lot of context that could be correct. And I fall on two major interpretations. So the first way that Paul could have used this phrase is in the Greco-Roman world, right, the world that was influenced by Greek and Roman uh, power structures and politics. I mean, that wasn't just Greek-speaking or Latin-speaking people. That was like everybody under their rule. There was several... Um, subcultures that would execute people by burning them alive. <laughs> they would burn them alive on, on a sort of altar, and as the victim would be burning, the priests or whoever was doing the execution would pour out wine on the victim as a libation to the gods, saying the justice is being done against this criminal. And specifically, if this criminal had maybe... Harmed one of the gods' temples or stolen from the gods. This would be a way to make reparations. This would be a way to please the god. See, we are pouring our wine on this screaming, burning victim as an offering to you. Wow, that is vile. <laughs> it, is, it is truly pagan. But it was something that when you saw it, it was an unforgettable mental image. You would have been burned into your psyche for all of your life. Been like, what is going on here? There's something like just crazy happening and Paul probably saw those kind of executions as he toured the the Greco-Roman world for his three missionary journeys. From the other side though it could have been from the Jewish expression of their faith. Um, There were several kinds of offerings and sacrifices a Jewish man or woman could bring to the temple. Uh, You could bring grain or wine, you could bring oil, doves, pigeons, sheep, goats or oxen. Those are the acceptable sacrifices for God. And in fact, a wine offering, you wouldn't pour it out on the altar. You'd offer your other items there, but you'd pour the wine offering next to the altar into a special basin. And it had to be a certain kind of wine. It couldn't be flavored. It couldn't be sweetened, which is what most people did. It couldn't be cooked over a fire to give it flavor. It had to be plain, pure, unfiltered wine. And I like to think that because Paul comes from both worlds, and actually, as his salvation shows, he was driven to, towards the Greco-Roman world, even though he was from Jewish background and origin. He was mixing these metaphors in this phrase, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, to demonstrate, I think, the complexity of his life and death. On one side, he was going to be executed by pagans as an offering to their god-emperor, He was going to be drugged before the emperor and slain and have the wine of wrath of these men and women poured out upon him as a vindication against his faith. Ha! We destroyed this man who preaches a false god. And also, on the other side, he had lived a pure, unblemished life. He was untainted, unfiltered wine that was being poured out to offer himself for God and for others on the fire of God's will for his life. So maybe he's both. Maybe he does see himself as this mixed bag of, of wrath and offering sacrificial uh, pardon for people. And he's using this imagery to paint a vivid picture of his coming death 
He's a Jewish religious leader who was, had roots in the Greco-Roman world. He was actually a Roman citizen. He was a both and. He was Jewish and Greco-Roman. He was, he was part of both worlds. He was pulling both pieces of the world, halves of the world together here. And God told him when he was saved that he would suffer greatly for him. And so I like to picture that Paul's life as he's been gradually poured out. It says, I am being poured out. That means he, there's an implication that he was poured out for a while. There's an indefinite article there. An, uh, and he could have been poured out the day he was called. I like to picture his blood as the seeds talked a lot about by Christ, where a seed is planted and a hundred and a thousand people will come to Christ out of that seed being planted. I picture Paul's little trail of <laughs> wine and he drug over and over throughout the whole Greco-Roman world as his offering to God, as his physical body was beaten, as his literal blood was spilled on the ground so that life could spring up, that, that his offering to God was his physical body. It's really intense. It's, it's kind of an insane to think about that this man at the end of his life could see with such clarity what he's done with his legacy. But the second section here is a little bit more uh, accessible for us, and I'll read it again. The second section begins with this, in verse 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. You see, there's two parts to this. There's part one, which is a physical story. It's got words like fight and race and keeping the faith, which would have been a word like keep, like, a, like protecting or, or keeping the faith, like in a tower and you're protecting it from the enemy. So there's physical imagery, and then there's a spiritual reward. So part one about the physical story of Paul, the fight, race, and faith imagery all involve a, a special sort of suffering, Right? For, for you to be a successful athlete, for you to be a successful boxer, you need to train. And not just train psychologically or train in some sort of like muscle memory thing. You need to train until you are sweating, that your heart is racing, your lungs are burning, until your body wants to give up. That's a special kind of suffering that we as humans engage in. I want to be good at this? Well, I'm going to beat my body until I'm good at this. Right? These images Paul puts before us are physical suffering images that, that, that require intense devotion to that way of life, right? So part one is dealing with these physical things, and we're going to start with the good fight, right? A good fight is a fight worth fighting, but, but, duh, right? Of course, as followers of Jesus, we are all called to, to fight our own flesh. Paul says this in Romans seven fifteen. He He basically says, like, I do not understand what I do for what I do want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul has to fight against his innate human desire to sin against God for his own benefit. He, the human person, we are all bound by this blindness, and the blindness is that we want to serve ourselves first, because we think if we don't, something bad's going to happen, right? If I don't find out what I want and do what I want first, something bad's going to happen, something that I can't get back. And Paul says we are called to fight daily against that and to do what God wants. It's difficult. So it's a personal fight, right? But that, I don't think that's what he's talking about when he says the good fight. But when it comes to the good fight, Paul isn't just fighting for himself daily. That would not be possible after a while. Like, think about it. Like, have you, any of you watched the pay-per-view Mike Tyson versus Roy Joyce Jr. boxing fight? Right? Mike Tyson's in his 50s, and he looks 
fantastic, by the way. He is jacked. He is a, he's a warrior. But he's not fighting for his title. He's not fighting to put his life on the line. He's fighting as an exhibition. He's fighting to get back in the game, to have some fun in the ring. He's not fighting to get his heavyweight title back from uh, the world champion right now. I think it's Anthony Joshua or Tyson Fury. One of those two. The point is, he would have been too old to go out and fight for that. No, Paul's not just fighting for his own title. He's fighting for something bigger than him. He's fighting for the souls of the tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of Gentiles he interacts with over his 30 years on this earth. He is fighting for them in such a way that, that their lives are at stake. And they're actually, they don't even know that there's a fight for their lives. They're losing a fight for their very souls that Paul is, is willing to stand in the gap for. Paul goes, I know you're losing this fight. I'm going to stand in the gap for you. I'm going to take the punishment. I'm going to box this, these, these spiritual principalities of this world, the political structures that are beating you down, these religious um, traps. I'm going to fight those for you, men, women, children that I meet. I'm going to fight for you. That's what the good fight is, the souls of, of the people that Paul interacts with. And he even says this in Ephesians 6, 12. He says, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is fighting a good fight. It's not just to win glory or to get his title or to be a good Christian. He's fighting so that people may come to see Jesus and that the scales may fall from their eyes, that the bondage of sin that they live in will be broken and they can be free and resurrected souls. <laughs> That's a good fight. My question to you is, have you ever fought for the good of others? Have you ever stood in the gap and taken the punishment for others? Have you ever fulfilled the needs of others and not fulfilled your needs? Try and remember one such moment and hold to that. That's what Paul did every day. That's what Jesus did every day. Probably Paul failed a lot, by the way. Paul was not perfect. Jesus did this every single day. He would, he would stand in the gap for the sake of others' souls and take upon himself the punishment so that they may see and have their eyes and ears opened to the truth. How far we fall from such a standard and how much more grace do we need to even begin that transformation? All right, so that was the fight imagery. Let's go to the race he says he finished the race, and this race is implied to be kind of a lifelong thing. So this isn't a sprint. This isn't even a jog or like a hustling, shifting walk, right, while people are watching you and cheering you on. This is a lonely marathon. It reminds me of the story of Philippides. Yeah, Philippides, as he delivered the news of an Athenian victory. This guy was a professional runner, and there was a big conflict back in the day between Athens and another warring state. And over three, two days, this, this professional runner, would set, he ran a total of 150 miles around the conflict, delivering messages. 150 miles in two days. At first you'd be like, that's impossible. Well, if you keep a 10-minute pace, mile pace for seven hours a day-ish, you'll run 75 miles a day. So that makes sense, right? He could, he could do it in two days. Yeah, he would be completely exhausted. But there are people on this earth can, that can do that. But the crazy thing is, uh, the, the fight was getting to a head, and there was a huge battle that was happening at Marathon. Hmm, just like the marathon that we run today. And this guy was back in Athens, and they said, go check on that battle to see if we won. Otherwise, we have to send reinforcements, and that's going to empty our city. We might have to evacuate. It's a big headache. So he runs 25 miles to the, 
to the Battle of Marathon. When he gets there, the battle had moved a little closer, but the Athenians had won. And so he runs all the way back, victorious in his heart, with the good news of the victory in his heart. And he gets there, he delivers the news. He says, we've won, and he dies. His heart gives out. He ran a total of 200, around 200 miles in three days, and he died. Paul is very much like this man. Paul has run his race trying to deliver the good news of the kingdom of God that has come to this earth, but he is spent. His heart is about to give out. He has is, he is run till his last breath. In Colossians 3, 1 through 6, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your minds and on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your heart is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why do I bring this up? Well, Paul was running a race for Jesus, but he wasn't running a race for this hypothetical Jesus. He's running a race for Jesus of, that he can see every day, clearly looking to the spiritual things that he has prioritized over the physical things in his life. Paul was hungry, he was beaten, he was sore, and yet he got up every day and he ran this race well. Why? Why would he do that? Well, his goal was not here. It was, it was not even far away. It was present in his eyes, in his, his heart, in his mind. It was Christ leading the way. It was the spirit moving in his life. It was the, the physical, spiritual needs of people right in front of him. So Paul captured the essence of what it meant. To, to live in this dual state. Because that's where we all live. We all live in the physical world, but there's a spiritual reality that we saw with the fight. There's a spiritual world behind the scenes that we ignore in the 21st century. Paul could not ignore it. He saw it every day. He was saying, I am fighting and running against these evil things, the principalities of the world, but also these, these evil desires that are going to destroy humanity. I'm running away from that, and I'm running toward Christ. I'm running toward the promises. I'm leading people toward the kingdom of God that has come to this world, but will also come finally one day where we will all be with him. Paul is running towards Jesus' kingdom, and he's running from the wrath of God against the sin of the world. That is what it means to finish the race. And finally, keeping the faith. Paul said he kept the faith. And the faith of Christ remains true no matter the circumstances of those who are delivering it. And we see that over and over. I'm not going to belabor this point. Paul has us convinced and Timothy convinced of this, to keep the truth, to stay the course in the faith of Christ, to preach the gospel well, to teach well, to be sober-minded, right? He's, we've gone over that. He knows that no matter what happens, who speaks false gospels, who comes to kill him, who comes to, to, to beat his body, that Christ is confirmed and he is true, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's written. It's done. All we can do is present it. It's, we're not embellishing. Paul wasn't embellishing. He was just communicating the gospel. So, step back. There's a lot to dig into. There's a lot to unpack. Um, this is only uh, a little bit left because we still have another part of the reward. But what's going on here? To sum it up, Paul's legacy of self-sacrifice and of pouring himself out like a drink offering to God resulted in him fighting for the salvation of souls from the bondage of sin and the demonic strongholds of this world. It also resulted in him running towards the kingdom of God on earth by creating the church and also towards the promises in heaven 
of eternal life and of peace with our Father and running away from, obviously, the, the attitudes and the destructive nature of humans on earth. And finally, the legacy of self-sacrifice resulted in him keeping his faith through every storm and opponent and trial that came against him. Wow, what a legacy. I want a, a billionth of that on my tombstone one day. <laughs> that's insane. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's because Christ kept him alive and confirmed in him the faith that he put in Paul's heart. It was the work of Christ that Paul finished so well, even though it was a sad ending. So let's see, what's this part two about? One more time, it's verse eight. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. You see, Paul's eyes were fixed on something that we don't even think about most of our day here in 2020. He was fixing his eyes on the spiritual realm, the eternal reward that will come for those who served God well. Now, the crown of righteousness is an interesting image. Uh, for a Greco-Roman person in the world of Paul, a crown, of, a victor's crown or a crown of laurels would be given to an athlete or an Olympian who won the event. And that victory would have resulted in lifelong fame, would have resulted in, in a bunch of people being your, your champion, be on your team. And uh, there's something that, that, uh, that can only be found in, in a victor's laurel, which is like this idea that, man, I am the champion. I've earned this by my sweat and my blood and my effort. I am now the champion. I deserve these city-states to give me their their money, their women, their, their, their libations, their offerings, their sacrifices. You become a mini-god. You become an instant celebrity. But then we have to look at, so again, Paul, that's his, that's his Greco-Roman side, but, but the other side is his Jewish side, and who was the ultimate example of a faithful Jewish person? Well, that's Jesus. And the only crown Jesus got on earth wasn't the crown that the people were trying to offer him when he came into the city for Palm Sunday. It wasn't the crown of, of moral rabbi teacher that he could have got by sitting in the temple and creating a school called the School of Jesus of Nazareth. No, he got a crown of thorns beaten into his head by the Roman oppressors who spit on him and mocked him and said, here's your king. Here's your king, you Jewish dogs. You're, you, here's your criminal, your disgusting excuse for power. Here he is. This is the crown Jesus got. His physical crown was nothing but pain and humiliation. But when that crown was removed from his dead body and thrown into a fire somewhere, Jesus rose as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he got his crown. He got the crown that gave him a name above every name, and he gets to sit down in power over heaven and the earth and everything under the earth. His crown of righteousness has been placed on his head. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the lamb who was slain, and that is the crown that Paul is looking at. Yes, Jesus wore a crown of humiliation on earth as Paul is wearing a crown of humiliation every day of his life by being covered in scars. But that is a temporary sacrifice for the future glory that is awaiting the faithful. Jesus imparts his righteousness upon those who he chooses. And guess what, guys? Righteousness doesn't mean like some esoteric spiritual dust 
It means a way to see and be right with God, to see the world as it should be, to act as we should. It's a beautiful gift. It's, a, it's the way that humanity needs to become evolved, if you use that word, into the next stage, which is elevated to be heirs of the kingdom, children of God, who partner with him in his work. This crown is what Paul sees, and he's like, that is worth it. That is worth every blood drop that I have shed for these people. It's worth every sleepless night, every tormenting uh, insult, every spit of, of someone's mouth on my face. It's worth everything because that is what I want more than anything. I want to be like Jesus, and I want what he has for me, and I can't wait to get it. Paul was racing and fighting and keeping his gaze on Jesus' gospel because of this eternal reward. And that is a very satisfying end to a very sad story. Uh, this author called Tulian Chavidian, <laughs> it's a religion, Chavidian, yeah, Chavidian. Tulian Chavidian says, there's nothing like suffering to reveal how small and needy you are. Pain has the remarkable capacity to reveal the weakness of the things you're leaning on to make life worth living. And boy, oh boy, is that true in 2020. We have allowed this year, for the most part, to beat us down. We have allowed the physical reality of our world to be uh, present in our suffering. <sighs> Sorry, there's people walking in. We have allowed the suffering of our physical reality in 2021 to overshadow the eternal reward. It's, it's, it's humbling. We are so needy, and yet why do we depend on our physical, relational desires to be met? And that will solve our problem. So many of us have depended on a political organization or a way of thinking, a worldview to save us from our, our sad 2020 existence. And we haven't turned our gaze to Jesus. We're not racing for that crown. We're racing for a, a, a laurel of leaves that we can go, yay, I did it, I got it. You should respect me. I need, I need rest, I need comfort, I need peace. And Jesus goes, you're not going to get that here? The world is incorrupt, is, 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 in, in, is incomparably corrupt. I can only give you an eternal reward. Only I have the ability to give you that eternal life that you crave, that rest, that hope, that peace only comes from me, not from, from the people around you, not from these institutions, not from the things that you put your hope in that will fade away. We need to learn to see the world in double. Yes, we need to embrace the physical reality of our world. We need to go, man, this is hard. This is rough. Wearing a crown of thorns isn't fun. Suffering for Christ is not fun. Running a race that is going to kill us is not going to be fun. Fighting a fight for other people at the expense of ourselves is not fun. None of this is fun, but it's worth it. Our stories need to be marked by, we want to have a satisfying ending to our story. Whether it's a good or, or a happy or sad ending, it needs to be a satisfying ending. The only way we get there is by trying to figure out how this text speaks to us. So I'm going to speed through my ending here because I don't have much to say beyond these little revelations I've been pondering for a bit. So what? Why, what? What are we supposed to see here with Paul? Well, Paul doesn't get the fairy tale ending that a lot of us wish we did. He doesn't die surrounded by his friends and family in bed, the ripe old age, with his health and his wealth and his, his inheritance passed on to his kids. No, he dies in, a, in a, the middle of a trial scene. The Romans chop his head off. That's it. He dies alone and weak and hungry. But his legacy in life 
are, are on display for the world to see. His legacy has changed countless people's lives. His reward, the crown of righteousness that he got when his head was chopped off, has also been translated to us. We have been able to glean from his amazing life by the work of the Spirit. We've been able to see what he's done and been encouraged and been convicted and been pushed forward. Remember, the confirmation of Jesus on his life is not just in this eternal future thing. It was actually for his life. Like he, Jesus preserved the story of Paul so that we may be encouraged. Just imagine like how poor Timothy felt reading this. He's like, oh my gosh, like this is a lot. You probably feel this way right now. Like this is a lot. Like what is going on? Blood sacrifice and, and fighting and running and keeping and, and crowns in heaven and what is going on? Well, that's probably how Timothy felt too. Like this is a lot. Am I supposed to be like that? That's, it's overwhelming. Paul, Paul was like a champion in his own way. He was a very specific champion and he suffered a very specific way. I don't want that. Yeah, it makes sense. But imagine being a disciple with Jesus. How much more intimidating is that to be with the, the word who became flesh, who pushed probably everyone around him to be better constantly just by who he was? Well, how do we do that? How do we emulate Jesus? How do we emulate Paul in this really hard year with our baggage and our sin and our weakness on display? Well, we do three things. So at the end of the day, Paul's legacy, his self-sacrificial way of living for others at the cost of himself, can teach us three things that we can do to begin that journey for ourselves. In our own context, I'm not asking you to go across the world and bleed for Christ. I'm not asking you to spend all your money and and leave your family behind to go be a missionary far away. I'm asking you to contextualize yourself and look at yourself in 2020 with clear eyes. And we can only do that with three things. We reflect, we repent, and we can repair. Okay, so reflect, repent, repair. And I'll unpack each of these, but this is important for us as human beings, as Christians who do treasure Christ to, to reset our eyes on, on the crown of righteousness set before us and to reset our lives in a, in a posture of self-sacrifice. So what do I mean by reflect? You need to spend time thinking about this year. You need to spend time remembering where we started and how we're ending. And just some fun things to remember. <laughs> Maybe not fun things. Some weird things that this year had in store for us. Well, we had Murder Hornets. We had the Tiger King uh, miniseries. We had UFO sightings released in April. Disney Plus got online, so we have Mandalorian, right? We, uh, we had the whole no toilet paper fiasco. We, we had uh, fires all over the place. And a lot more, right? Political, socioeconomic, crazy stuff happened. But all this outside, like what... We need to ask ourselves when we reflect, what happened, right? That's, that's the start. Like, what happened? Pick a month. What happened? Where was God in that month? Ask yourself the next question. Where was God in those moments? And then ask yourself, where was I in those moments? What was I doing or saying? And quickly, this kind of like macro to micro lens will, will, will draw you to a moment usually of going, yeah, I wasn't really my best self. I, yeah, I... I don't like seeing myself in that moment. I don't like seeing my heart in that moment. I don't want to remember the things and the deeds and the words that I said in that moment because it wasn't pretty. So the reflection should drive us to the next point, repent. (laughs) Repenting has two aspects to it. There's a turning of repentance means to turn from our sin. And what does it mean? Well, we need to learn from our mistakes. 
You guys all know the definition of insanity, right? Anyone who repeats the same thing and expects different results is not operating in, not operating in reality. And that's, yet that's how we operate. I think we're all bit, uh, pretty much a little bit insane because we all can, because we don't reflect and because we don't turn, we keep going like, man, I keep hitting my head on this wall. And, and anyone watching will go, yeah, because you're not changing anything. You're not changing your attitudes, your mentality, your habits. You're just going to keep hitting your head on that wall. You're going to keep saying the rude things you're saying or believing the false things you believe or, or breaking relationships the same way you break them because you're not changing anything. So stop complaining and change it. Turn. By the power of the Spirit in you, by the gift of grace that Christ extends to his people, turn. Turn away from those things. We have a mighty intercessor, the King of kings in heaven, who can give you that power. You just need to ask. You need to ask and you need to be ready to receive it and you need to be ready to make that sacrifice to change. And that comes to the next part. Ask. Ask your spouses. Okay, here's, here's the hardest thing I'm going to ask you today to do besides listen to me is ask your spouses or your kids or your close friends or family, whoever's nearby who's been with you during this, this, this 2020 year the most, ask them where you've messed up this year. Ask them where you've failed. How else will you know where to repent? How else will you know where you've made mistakes? If you don't ask, you assume you know. You're like, ah, yeah, I did some things there, but it wasn't that big a deal. I don't really need to ask about that because they, 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 they grew past it. They, they forgave me. How do you know? How do you know that these people in your life haven't been irreparably damaged by our attitudes this year? I've had to do this with my kid. I've had to do this with my wife. I've had to look myself in the face in the mirror and go, I need to go ask for some, some forgiveness. I need to be like, I am not done well this year. I've been weak. I've, I've been, I lost my temper. I have lost my hope. I've been despondent. I've been unhelpful. I need to go repent and ask these people what I can do and where, where I've messed up. How can you change if our perception of reality isn't complete? That's what asking does. It, it, it puts the missing puzzle pieces together. So we reflect, we repent, and then we do something that we can only do with the help of Jesus. We repair. Repairing has two aspects to it. There's, there's the fix aspect. So repairing means to fix, right? To, to, to patch a hole. Um, when you ask somebody what you've done wrong, and they tell you, then you ask them, how can you make amends? How can I fix that? How can I help you trust me again? How can I help you see that I've grown beyond that way of thinking? Or how can I, how can I, do, how can I fix it? How can I fix it? We all get distracted. I want, I want us all to take a step back. This isn't me condemning you. This isn't me saying we have all, we're just hopeless in this, which we are. But this is me saying we all get distracted by the physical stresses and needs of this life, specifically this year. This year has has caused us all to have anxiety and a level of depression and, and stress. And it makes us have blinders onto the spiritual reality of what our actions and words are doing. We're just saying, okay, well, I need to fill my needs now, my physical needs, my relational needs, and I don't care about the physical, the spiritual world and the implications of my attitude. But, but we need to do physical and spiritual repair work. We need to go back and patch those holes, not just relationally, but spiritually. We need to go to God and say, I need you to direct me to healthy habits. I need you to help me repair my broken heart and the fact that I don't talk to you, the fact that I don't listen to your music, the fact that I don't enjoy your word, the fact that I don't want to see other Christians or talk to them because I hate them. But those are things that we need to fix in our hearts and only God can fix that. But then you also need to fix the physical, relational problems you've created for yourself too. And why do we do this? Why do we, why do we have to fix things? Well, we're not just fixing things so that it's fixed. We're fixing these things to prepare for something next. 
So for instance, like when you break your arm, you, the doctor sets your bone. He, he'll fix your bone, but then you've got to do physical therapy to repair your arm. What does that mean? Strengthen and, and, and create a scenario where your arm will probably not break again break again. You're going to strengthen and get ready. You're going to prepare your arm for, for work, for, for abuse down the line, right? you got to prepare in, in the re- repair. If you have a hole in your roof and winter's coming, you fix the hole in your roof, not just to look at that repaired roof and go, that's a nice roof right there. You're doing it so that water and snow don't come in your house. There's a preparation aspect to repairing. And that's what we need to focus on for 2021, is that we are entering another year. Another year where I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're like, it's going to be the same, or maybe you're like, it's going to be different. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. We don't know. So after we've reflected and we've repented and begun to repair, we need to prepare for 2021. What does that look like? Well, God, get me ready for it. I want to be ready for whatever storm comes. I want to be ready if there's sunny sh- sunshine and, and daisies or hurricane winds. I got to be ready. And what that means is I got to be humble and ready to move where you want me to move. I need to be a man or woman who's defined like Paul by self-sacrifice, by fighting for others, by running towards Christ, by keeping our gaze on the, on the crown of righteousness set before us. That's how we do it. But you can't just do that overnight you got to start from the ground up. you got to fix your foundation. you got to move forward from that place of humility and trust in God. So what better way to do that than communion? If you uh, have your communion elements with you, this is your time. Otherwise, rush over and get them. Communion is a beautiful illustration of two really cool truths we see in this passage. We see a cup metaphor, the, the libation, or the pouring of wine out in a sacrificial way. Well, we have a cup. The, Christ says that this wine glass, when he was sitting down with his disciples, he was saying that this wine glass used to, to, to imply an old covenant relationship with God. A lamb was slain so that you could come to the temple and worship. Guess what? I have a new covenant for you. This will be filled with my blood. This is a joy mixed with sorrow moment. It is a sad ending, but it's a satisfying ending, and I'm bringing this to you. It's a physical suffering mixed with the spiritual reward that we see all throughout Paul is the double vision of our world brought together into one cohesive moment. And also, that's the first part of communion that reflects to this, but also it's part of our race. It's a part of the way we keep the faith, right? When we, when we reflect around the table of Christ, we keep our gaze on the reward that he has won for us through his sacrifice. And so I want uh, us all to, to take a moment and to, to take your bread. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took in, the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we think about the, the body of Christ being broken for us, we have to think about the brokenness of our own physical relational lives and the, the chaos that we create when we lose sight of the crown of righteousness he's won. That's why we reflect and repent. We have to just, all we can say is sorry. But then he gives us a cup. And he took a cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the blood of the covenant. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in that cup, there's joy mixed with sorrow. There is celebration mixed with, with blood, with the suffering of the saints. And that's where the reparation begins. That's where we begin to see our lives transformed. The new covenant starts springing up in us that we see that like our, our hearts can be buoyed up by him who won it for us. So thank you so much for, for spending this time with me. And I pray that um, you'll spend the time to reflect repent and repair so that we can move forward into 2021 as a cohesive, loving community of believers who live for others, not ourselves, and, and fight the good fight and finish the race for Christ. Thank you.